I'm Julian Thompson of Regent's Park College and I'm going to talk about an unexpected but significant contributor to British modernism. He's also, in the words of Kingsley Amis, our greatest writer of short stories, Rudyard Kipling. Kipling's stock in the Academy was very low in the decades after his death. One Cambridge Don, writing the first major critical study of his work in the 1950s, kept her labour secret from her colleagues. She knew well that Levisite liberal humanists were anything but liberal and humane on the subject of Kipling. Some made exceptions for later short fiction, as there his modernist credentials were hard to ignore. But the writer's earlier work, with its equally sophisticated technique but often brutal gusto, was relegated to the taste of retired colonels and other assorted jingoes. In my view, we should read all of Kipling's short fiction of a piece, without making exceptions either for the writer's taste or our own. His early work is simpler and more direct than the more elaborate later stories, but this is largely because the later slow-burning tales are longer and there are more of the early flash powder ones. What is more significant is that even at the beginning of his career, in his early twenties, Kipling was using all the traffic signals of modernism. Limited narrators, framing narratives, elliptical montage and studied ambiguity. These were not just examples of a boy wonder's precocity or virtuosity. As with the more celebrated indirections of Conrad's breakthrough short story collection, Tales of Unrest, 1897, Kipling uses the technical sophistication of the modern short story to illustrate how difficult it is to know another person, or situation, or culture. Just as in Conrad, Kipling's complex technique leads the reader to fiercely simple moral choices. Kipling conducts us to the limits of human experience, marking the boundary we dare not or should not cross as starkly as an unbridged, fast-flowing river. But where Conrad often argues that the intricacy of modern experience renews the call for ancient ideals like honour or fidelity, Kipling is likely to advocate circumspection. In that, he's possibly the more developed modernist, impersonal, capable of living with mystery. We should appreciate the beauty and strangeness of that mysterious, ever-flowing river, but be very careful how or where we wade in. Kipling's earliest stories show how little Europeans can see of what is often called in E.M. Forster the real India. Kipling's Anglo-Indians only peer at it in lurid, dusty vignettes. In Beyond the Pale, which dates from 1888, Trejago, an amateur detective who works all day as a civil servant, goes out by night experimenting with his knowledge of what were then called native customs. He can translate the object letters a young widow sends him from behind her purda, and can reply to them in kind. 
He can put on a burqa, i.e. disguise himself as a Muslim woman, climb into the girl's bedroom above a hidden gully and make love to her whenever he chooses. The results are catastrophic. When he returns to his love nest after a break, the girl holds up to the moonlight two severed stumps. Male relatives have amputated her hands. The same male relatives lie in wait for Trajago and try unsuccessfully to castrate him, doing enough damage to his groin, however, to make him limp for life. At the end of this story, it doesn't matter much whether Trajago loved his little Bisesa, as he might have loved an Englishwoman, had circumstances been different, for as the narrator put it, he cannot get Bisesa. Poor little Bisesa back again. He has lost her in the city, where each man's house is as guarded and unknowable as the grave. And the grating that opens into Amirnath's gully has been walled up. Kipling's moral is simple and characteristic. Respect necessary limits. Then, in our world of pain, some suffering, at least, may be avoided. A man should, whatever happens, keep to his own caste, race and breed, says the narrator. Let the white go to the white and the black to the black. Then whatever trouble falls is in the ordinary course of things. Neither sudden, alien, nor unexpected. So, Trajago's is the story of a man who, again in the words of Kipling's narrator, willfully stepped beyond the safe limits of decent everyday society and paid for it heavily. But the paradox of this deceptively complex tale is that Kipling's narrator has also stepped beyond those safe limits. How else can he have found out about hidden gullies like Amirnath's or what object letters mean all India over? Story after story works like this, built on the conceit that invisible young Kipling supreme modernist artist two decades before his time, can sit paring his fingernails, secure in an encyclopedic Joycean knowledge that should have taken him several lifetimes to acquire. Kipling's narrators have learnt all the bizarre talk, know what danger lurks behind the most distant copy on the veldt, can even understand and write about ways in which elephants feel jealousy. Yet all this security of vision and presentation only lead them to exhort us who know so much less and who are so hungry for knowledge on our own account to keep ourselves, and perhaps even our cultures, to ourselves. No one does better than Kipling the regular nightmare of the Englishman far from home, where the otherness of the Orient gangs up on him and leaves him marooned in a vast desert or labyrinth or, as in the early story, The Strange Ride of Morrowby Dukes from 1885, 
in both at once. How many young Anglo-Indians must have felt like civil engineer Morabi, under quinine, without antidepressants, after too much desk work in time of cholera? The hero of this more or less first-person story dreams, or does he dream? He falls into a sand pit. He thinks at first it's a burial ground, but it turns out to be a kind of dormitory for human pariahs. The Europeans bedding down with grimly fatalistic natives. Here, Morabi reflects on his predicament, was a saib, a representative of the dominant race, helpless as a child and completely at the mercy of his native neighbours. The only other Englishman in the pit is a mummified corpse in an olive green hunting suit. This doesn't look like an imperialist manifesto. Au contraire. Though most of the words are Morabis, the story is framed by that familiar, knowing, Kipling voice, making it the warning of a wily and sophisticated colonial that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in Whitehall philosophy. Kipling's theme in these early stories, the apparent benefits and much greater dangers of initiation, are carried on into the strangest and profoundest story of his middle period, they, from 1904. In this story, the immensity of India with its complex law and procedures is replaced by what seem at first to be the more comfortable involutions of the Sussex Downs. Welcoming new technology, this story features a veteran car ride through veils of yielding leaves to the house beautiful. At first shyly, but then with hilarious confidence, children emerge from the woodland around the house to see the narrator's new toy. The blind lady who lives there can't see them, of course, but Kipling's narrator can, or thinks he can, and Kipling, as those who've read Just So stories, or the Jungle Books know, is a past master at entertaining elusive children. One of the clues to the real depth and pain of they is that the House Beautiful is a scarcely concealed portrait of the house Kipling eventually settled at in England, Batemans in Sussex. As this is now in the care of the National Trust, it's easy to visit and be overcome, as I was, with the sense of walking into one of your favourite stories. But if the house is accessible, so by virtue of its patient, complex, modernist technique, is the mystery it contains. Kipling, a lifelong mason, taught his children special Masonic signs known to father and to favoured child alone. At the climax of the story, one of the house beautiful children impresses such a private sign into the narrator's eager palm, proving the child is the narrator's own dead daughter. Her ghost has, as Kipling puts it in the haunting poem Merrow Down, shown her daddy where she flits. And we know too, in that quiet yet tactile climax, 
that the story possesses unbearable autobiographical edge. For Kipling's own daughter, Josephine, who died of fever at the age of seven in 1898, is of course his real subject. The story's elaborate mechanism with its rattling temperamental car, its masonic signs and its seance-like sense of ritual. All that consummate modernist indirection has led to a familiar Kipling terminus, the brink of the other, to Amur Nath's gully and Morrowby Jukes's sand pit, and this time Kipling himself knows he will never again cross the sunny, leafy boundary between life and death. He has both created and violated. Like Trajago, a sadder and a wiser man, he must limp into the future. Something else that they confirms about the other world of Kipling's stories is its extraordinary solidity and convincingness. Another great modernist, T.S. Eliot, was so impressed, he imported the whole evocative imagery of the children in the foliage, hidden excitedly, containing laughter, from Kipling's They, into the first of his four quartets, Burnt Norton. Another story where Kipling creates ghosts, like a searchlight, is The Wish House. This is a left-handed love story in broad Sussex dialect about two overweight grandmothers who meet each other on charabank trips. Can a modernist short story become more promisingly indirect? But one of the ladies knows about a ghost that can work miracles. It can take the pain of a fatal cancer from your beloved and give it to you instead. And the gypsies say it can be found in a wish house, which is a house which has stood unlet and empty long enough for someone like to come and inhabit there. A knowing little girl tells one of the gammers there is such a wish house in Wadless Road, just a few streets off on the way to the greengrocers. All you had to do the little girl said, was to ring the bell and wish your wish through the slit at a letterbox. I asked her if the fairies give it her. Don't you know, she says, there's no fairies in a wish hours. There's only a token. Good Lord Almighty, where did she come by that word? cried Mrs. Fetley, for a token is a wraith of the dead or, worse still, of the living. The token don't open the door to ye then, I says. Oh no, she says, you only hear giggling like behind the front door. This mechanism is astonishing. A piece of invented folklore that turns Kipling into something like Tolkien, the creative equivalent of a whole people. Yet the token's habitat is not the plains of India, a Caribbean voodoo island, or Tolkien's epic Middle Earth, but hot, windy West London streets. As Kipling never tired of saying, England was the strangest, 
foreign country he'd ever visited. If great modernist writers like Mansfield, Eliot and Pound are always cosmopolitan at heart, none was a more gifted wanderer than Rudyard Kipling. But no Kipling country is stranger than his presentation of the human mind. Kipling's last great story of limit and retreat is Dayspring Mishandled. It's a revenge story. The hero, like Trajago in Beyond the Pale, is steeped in arcane and wonderful knowledge. He uses it to forge a Chaucerian manuscript. All-knowing Kipling, with characteristic virtuosity, invents for him a Chaucerian couplet, more poignant than anything Chaucer himself wrote, and at the same time a sort of virtual addition to the medieval canon. Ah, yes, you mudder. Pity my oer pena, dire spring mishandilt, cometh not againer. Again, Kipling shows modernist credentials by excelling in pastiche, making the parodies in Joyce's Oxen of the Sun look rather thin. Manilus, the scholarly forger in Kipling's story, puts this manuscript where he knows his scholarly victim will find it. Signed with an internal acrostic, he will then be able to expose his friend's discovery of a new Canterbury tale at any time. It's a brilliant plan, but at the same time a rather puny life's work. For Manilus waits and waits, watching his literary friend's life from the margins, as it were, biding his time. But as the years pass, there seems much less point in pulling the trigger, publishing and seeing poor Casterly damned. After all, was insulting one of Manilus's favourite music hall actresses when both men were young sufficient reason for such an elaborate payback? When Casterly falls ill and his wife is about to cuckle him with the family physician, Manilus, like Trajago in the first story, stays his hand and wanders limping away. Kipling's stories, both early and late, tell us to be careful how we cross the surging river his imagination has conjured. Best to turn back where we came from and be satisfied. That's not because the mystery at the world's end has been undervalued or because Kipling's art is unsophisticated, reductive or cruel. It's because Kipling's fiction knows how to generate and bathe in mystery that he also knows how to measure and fear it. He says something like, look your fill on the intractable plains of India or the problem of human pain and be content and turn back my beloved. East is east, west is west, day spring mishandled, cometh not again. T.S. Eliot urging us to rest at the end of the wasteland in The Peace That Passeth Understanding could not say it better. The stories I have discussed are Beyond the Pale from Plain Tales from the Hills, 1888, 
The Strange Ride of Morrowby Dukes, from The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Eerie Tales, 1885. They, from Traffics and Discoveries, 1904. The Wish House, from Debits and Credits, 1926. And Dayspring Mishandled, from Rewards and Fairies, 1936. Thank you very much for listening.